Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm studio producer, artist, and DJ Ben Sinek, better known as Cosmo D., and best known as a primary member of the 1980s electro-funk hip-hop group Nucleus. The group rocked radios, clubs, and parties across the nation with the 1984 classic Jam On It, and also gained notoriety with tracks like Jam On Revenge, the Wiki Wiki song, Computer Age, Push the Button, Destination Earth, and Auto Man. Nucleus has continued to perform, and a couple of years ago dropped the Summer of 79 single. All right, Cosmo, how are you? What's up, man? How you feeling? I'm doing good. I hope you are as well. Good, good. Nah, hanging in there. I'm blessed, man. Yeah, I heard that. Uh, where, where are you coming to us from today? Eastern Pennsylvania. That's where I live now. All right. And for those of us who don't know the state uh, that well, how close is that to Philly? Or um, it's not. It's a, It's about 65 miles north to north north to northeast of Philly, and about 70 miles straight west from New York City. All right. So you're not too far from your roots. No, not far at all. Yeah. Hour, hour and a half, hour, 40 minutes drive, and I'm home. There you go. Well, hey, um, appreciate you doing this, and I've uh, been looking My forward pleasure. to it. So thanks, Cosmo. 
All right. Let's uh, jump right in with uh, from Brooklyn originally. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, your childhood, uh, the overall environment and, and how music came into your life? All right. Um, well, I grew up in two households, basically. Um, I, I, I was the only child of a single mother. And, you know, I lived with her, but I was always over my grandparents, you know, uh, all the time. So as we were back, I was back and forth. And originally, um, when I first became observant of, of, of life, we, we both my grandparents and my mother and I lived in um, Bed- Bedford-Stuyvesant, in the Bedford-Stuyvesant part of Brooklyn. Um, eventually, when I was nine years old, my mother and I moved to Park Slope. So, and I would go back and forth from Bedstuy to Park Slope. Um, and um, so, both both neighborhoods really shaped, had a lot to do with shaping who I am, you know, especially culturally. Um, Music-wise, my mother was into all kinds of music. She loved all kinds of music. Um, and she played played music a lot in the house. So I was really, I, I, I grew to absorb, you know, the stuff that she played in, and I loved it. Um, and um, she, she, she played Broadway one minute, you know, some, some, some R&B the next minute you know, some jazz the next minute, you know, and um, all the stuff from, um, from, from, from Peter Pan (laughs) and West Side Story to, 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 to Maria McKeever and Hugh Masekela, you know, I grew up absorbed in all of that, um, absorbing all of that. And, um, it, 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 it still still drives me. Um, so I, I, I had a love of music, all music. Um, but I guess even from the beginning, the music I gravitated most towards was jazz. Um, she had an album, um, The Emancipation of Hugh Masekela. It's still probably, it's definitely in my top 10 maybe close to my most favorite album of all times, you know, and it, to the point that, that even, even older in high school, you know, I'd ride the train and he had um, this, this, this song. Um, it, it, it was a, a cover of, um, of a Brazilian song. Um, e Felicidad. And, and, I knew the solo in my mind from heart, from the whole song. I would play, whistle the whole song, riding the subway, because I had to ride the subway for, for, for an hour to get to high school. And, and I just do the whole song in my head, you know, things like that. All those things shaped me a lot as far as my music was concerned. The streets shaped me culturally and all of that, ended up going into in, into forming forming me. Um, also in New York, I, I, I was born in 59, so I grew up in, in New York in the 60s and the 70s. 
And um, we had Superstation, AM station, WABC in New York, which was a top 40 station. They played everything. So, you know, and since I was already loving all kinds of music, I, I, I absorbed all of that as well. So the first music that I considered my favorite was rock and roll and pop. You know, stuff like the Beatles and um, Three Dog Night, you know, stuff like that I gravitated to. And my first favorite group was Santana. And by then, you know, I, I, I had the jazz at home, but it was, wasn't jazz or anything on the radio. I had the jazz that my mother played, but all I knew is what stuff my mother played. So, you know, I became a Santana fan and I bought Santana albums. I was into Santana and Santana is instrumental rock and roll. Well, Santana went from instrumental rock and roll into jazz fusion. And when he went, I went right along with him. And that shaped me. And in the 70s, you know, you dis I discovered puberty, <laughs> you know, because I, I came of age in the 70s. You know, I was into fusion. I was into rock and roll um, around 70, 73, 74. I... I was introduced to marijuana, you know, and, and, and other mind-bending drugs. And all of this started shaping my, 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 my existence. Still running in the streets of Bed-Stuy and Park Slope. And at the same time, DJing. I, I, I was in the, the spring of 75, I'm in, I went to a school called John Dewey High School, which is a school in um, part of Brooklyn called Bensonhurst, which is right across the uh, canal from Coney Island. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there I'm smoking weed and cutting class, hanging out with super seniors in, in, uh, in the projects across the street from the high school. They're drinking Brass Monkey. And, uh, and I'm sitting there, somebody had a box, a, a, a radio, you know, and they put a tape in. And the tape was by this, this DJ from, from Coney Island called Count JC. And he played this record called Bra by a group called Samandi, you know, which it played on the radio. By this, by this time, FM had come in. And, you know, I started listening to heavy rock radio and I started listening to black radio, you know, um, stuff like WBLS. And what was the what was the what was the white station, the rock station, WPLJ. So I'm, I'm absorbing all of this. And Bra used to play on on, on WBLS. You know, it, it was a soul funk record. But there's this solo, a bass breakdown in the middle of the record. You know, and I, you know, the record was already a hit. It's probably a year or two after it had been a hit. So everybody knows how the record's supposed to go. This guy is mixing it back and forth, cutting it back and forth, and extending the bass break. I never heard anything like that. 
I know how the record's supposed to go, and he's making it funkier. And from that point on, I decided I wanted to be a DJ. So all of these things came in and, and shaped me. And, and, and at this time, you know, he was, Count JC was a street DJ. This was just starting to happen in Brooklyn, that at least just in my experience, you know, because it had been going on, but, you know, I'm only, I'm only 15 years old, you know, and it just blew my head. And all of this started happening. They started jamming in the parks and all, all of that just shaped me, man. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How's that I'm, for an answer? Huh? <laughs> oh, it's great. You know, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm hearing a lot of, um, you know, things that I totally relate to uh, Cosmo because I'm a couple years younger, but I grew up also where my grandparents were a huge influence. Uh, and my parents are from Brooklyn, Coney Island and oh, that cool. part of the country and my sister too. Cool. Um, and, uh, I started DJing in high school, you know? So yeah, I feel you. I've, and yeah. also experimenting with, you know, all that. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I totally get it, man. Um, but man, it's been exciting though. I mean, I grew up on the West coast, so later on, of course, had gangster rap and all that, but, um, it must've been exciting being in the part of country you were, which was really the birthplace right. of hip hop and rap as, as we came to know it. Right. I know it was, it was an amazing time and I, I was really blessed to grow up and get to experience all of that at the same, you know, when, when it happened, you know? Um, you know, I, I, I wrote graffiti, you know, I DJed, I got on the mic. I was never an MC, but I would get on the mic and say my rhymes. I had my book of rhymes and the crowd love it. You know, uh, all, I, I, all of this, you know, I, I could write a book, all the stuff that we went through it, it, that, that we lived, man. It, it was an amazing time to grow up. Yeah. Now I know you started off. Um, how did you come to be part of a musical entity? You know, I know there was a precursor to Nucleus. Um, can you, you talk about how that got off the ground? All right. Um, well, you know, I, 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 like I said, I love music and um, the, 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 the actual playing was, was separate from the DJing. They were two different things. I, 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 I don't believe that I ever really started mixing the two until, still I, start, until I started making my own music. And, and then it be, one became an extension of the other. But there were two different things I wanted to do. The first thing I wanted to do was play guitar. And, you know, I had my mother buy me a guitar and, you know, I, started playing around with it and, and but but you know i had one guitar lesson and the the guitar teacher basically told my brother he he, he doesn't have the discipline he's not gonna follow through you know because i i just wanted to get right to play and you know i did and chords were painful it was a hard thing to do i didn't want to learn chords but i could solo you know I, I I learned how to do the tuning and, and I learned the strings and I got pretty good at soloing, you know. And, and at this time, I was into Parliament Funkadelic. I I put on stuff like like, like uh, America Eats Its Young and 
follow along the solos and it, it oh man you know and i got into a a, a band uh uh first it was a, a cover band and then it became a reggae band um with this guy he was he was a good guitarist and you know it was um some of my good friends you know one played decided to play drums other one decided to play bass this guy was a guitarist. He was a guitarist. The rest of us would try. And, you know, I figured, okay, I'll try guitar, but, you know, all I could do is just play my one string at a time. You know, so I did that and got fired from that band and back in the band and fired from the band and back in the band. And a, a long, about the same time, a friend of mine, this, was, this band was in Park Slope. In Bed-Stuy, a a a a a buddy of mine that lived on the block there was a drummer, and he was a damn good drummer. He didn't have a drum set; he had to get somebody to get a drum set for him. But boy, he's got—he had oh man, he could have been something. But um, he had he and kids from his high school, some 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 kids from his high school started a a a a a. a cover rock band you know we we would do things like smoke on the water and 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 and, and, and you know stuff like that but we also do um 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 love hangover <laughs> you know so i joined that band but i joined as a singer you know and, and i was the, the rock singer for the band you know, I'm a terrible singer. I can play, I can sing on key, but I get hoarse easy. So by the end of every show, I'm mad. But anyway, and we call that band Thunderfunk. Well, in that band was at, at the time I was what 18. I got thrown out of high school at 17. So I was either 17 or 18 at the time. Um I got thrown out for selling weed. Uh, I, got, I got in a fight with a customer. A customer used to be a friend of mine. And they, they, they busted me and they said, okay, well, you have to go. So anyway, but I ended up getting my GED and have my high school diploma before my class graduated. So it, it ended up being the best move for me anyway, because I, I was smart. I could go, go get stoned and go and pass any test but I wasn't going to class. <laughs> so they, they said, no, we're not passing you anyway. So uh, um, this, this guy that, that named Bob, he was younger than me. I was, I, I, was, I was about 17 or 18. I think Bob was only maybe 15. You know, and when you're young, those ages mean a lot. You know, not when you're older, but when you're young, those ages mean a lot. But he played bass and he was pretty good at bass. So he he was in the band with us and we named the band Thunderfunk. And you know, we did block parties and stuff like that. So. Um, then was when that was the same time the DJing started taking off and I started DJing and we were successful with the DJing. We started doing parks and all that when we started getting our equipment and the band fell off and I was doing the DJing thing. And um, 
we 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 were killing in Brooklyn, killing, um, doing a lot a lot of a lot of jams, a lot of doing a lot of jams in the parks, doing a lot of block parties, doing a lot of wedding receptions and stuff like that, and um, that you know got us out there and, and that that immersed us deep into what would eventually be known as hip hop culture, but it was basically New York street culture at the time, you know, what was going on in the streets. And um, you move on a couple of years of this and right around um, 1979, it, 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 I, I, started, I started a job. You know, I, I met my wife. I met Lady E. She wasn't my wife yet, but I met I met Yvette. You know, she came and joined Jam On, and she was she was an MC. You know, and I you know in the crew and all that, and we started going out. And um, I got myself together. I stopped smoking weed and other things. <laughs> And I went out and I got a job because I said that I, I, I realized I found the love of my life, you know. So the the running around DJing and chasing chicks and all that, I said I can put that away now, and I can focus on what I want to do. So I needed a job because I didn't, you know, back then DJing we weren't making money. All the money we got we spent on on equipment, weed. Or 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 records, you know. So I needed a job. I'm working in the law firm in 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 the mailroom of a law firm, Simpson Thatcher and Bartlett. And when I'm, you know, I'm a messenger in the neighborhood. And on 48th Street, there was this little store, Electroharmonics. Where, where where they sold all sorts of gadgetry and stuff, and they had a little synthesizer about Yaton for those who are listening. I'd say about a foot, a foot by seven to eight inches, seven inches. Let's say that, and it's made out of plastic with membrane keys and cardboard on the back, and it was only a hundred and something dollars. And, you know, I had already tried to do music before with the guitar and then singing and all that. But here I am now, I'm a DJ. And one thing I noticed about DJing, when I hear a record, I said, I could do that record better if I had. So I've seen the synthesizer. I said, I bet I could probably, you know, because synthesizers can do the bass. They can do all the different sounds. I said, I bet I could probably do better than these records if I had one of them. So I went and I got that, and I got a Dr. Rhythm drum machine, Boss Dr. Rhythm drum machine. Took them home, <coughs> and me and Yvette, me and Lady E, the same night, we took two tape recorders. We recorded, I came up with, with some music, recorded on, on, on one tape recorder, and then we played that back and put some vocals by playing playing through the mixer on the, another tape recorder. And we did back the back a few times. We came up with a song the same night. First night I brought the damn thing home. And that, that's, that was my life there. 
That's when my life changed right then and there because I said to myself, I can do this. Now, I don't have those tapes anymore. I would love to hear what they sound like because I, I, I learned that I can hear things, you know, that most people, you know, that's garbage, you know, because they can't hear what it, what the potential of what it is, you know. But I knew from that first record, it was a good song, you know, wrote it that night. It's a good song, good music, had, had changes. And, and a chorus and all that. I said, I can do this. And that was my focus from that, from that point on, 1979. And um, okay, so we move on. I started getting better. I get more, more, more you know, I, I changed drum machines. I bought a Vakoda, you know, I, 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 I started um, doing doing um um adding the music you know to my dj sets and stuff like that you know um added added um another keyboard and all that get more equipment but i'm still doing tape to tape you know two tape decks and and the sound recording is terrible when you do that so i came up with this little rap thing uh called freak city rapping and I said, okay, I'm going to see if I can get a record deal. So I went out, you know, but I only have, when you do tape the tape, you end up with one tape. And I went out into the streets and I tried to, you know, to the record stores. I mean, not record stores, record labels, and, and, and tried to get them to listen to the tape. Nobody would listen to it. They said, no, you got to leave it. And I said, but it's the only copy I have. They said, no, you got to leave it. So I end up with this one guy um, at, at Reflection Records. That they, they had put out a record called Raptivity, you know, because the reason I found all these record companies, you know, going through my crates and seeing who was doing, you know, rap records, you know, because it's early rap records. We're talking 1980. So this is earliest rap records. And this guy named Joe Webb was in there, and he said he would listen to the tape. So he listens to it. He, he's giving me pointers and all this and all that and so forth and so on. And I respected that. At least he listened to it and he gave me constructive criticism. I said, okay, fine. You know, he, he didn't want it because it sounded, sounded like shit, you know, because it's tape to tape. So I said, what I need now, because right what had just come out, Tascam, TAC Tascam had a Porter studio, what they call a Porter studio which was a little board, mixing board, that recorded the four-track cassette, cassette, but instead of it going, the two tracks going one way, two tracks going the other way, which is how cassettes usually are, where you have to flip them over, it's four, four tracks going one direction, so you can do four tracks on a cassette. So I said, then I don't have to do tape to tape. I can actually overdub you know, I, or, on this, on this um, machine. So I got my cousin, my cousin Monique, Nikki D. Nikki D was also a DJ. Um, we, we didn't even talk about Jam on Productions, but um, when we started DJing, I started with my cousins, Nikki D, uh, um, Monique, and Pete, Master Quadro, um, their brother and sister. They had lost their mother and they, they, they were being raised by our grandparents. 
So they lived in Bed-Stuy in our grandparents' house. So we built the equipment and all that. We, we, we started jam on productions together. So she had some money. I didn't have money yet um, to, to get the sporter studio. She said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it, I'll give you the money, you know, as an investment. But she said, but she was going out with Bob, the same bass player. And he went by the DJ name. He was a DJ, DJs also. He went by the DJ name Chili B, the same bass player from Thunderfunk. Her, the two of them were going out. She said, but will you work with him on some music? So Bob was dope. He was a dope bass player. I found out later he could play just about anything. I said, yeah, sure. We'll start working together. And so we got the Porter Studio and the same situation. Bob and I, Chili B and I, we got together. The first night we got the Porter Studio, wrote recorded a song named Until the Morning, the same night. And like I knew, this is it. And um, okay, so I think I answered your question now. <laughs> I'm sorry, man, I can go on tangents, but no, that's it, cool. it's a long life, man, and it's all threaded together. Yeah, you're conjuring just memories for me too. I'm thinking about, you know, all my DJ equipment. I built the, the coffin, I built the record crates and carpeted nice. them and in my mom's apartment, you know. There so, you go. Yeah. Those were the days when you had to be so resourceful and it was just, you know, the early beginning, like you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You know? um, but where did, uh, and how did a positive messenger come in? Well, that Chili B and I, we decided because um, at the time we were both very much into God, Christianity, uh, we weren't religious. We weren't churchgoers, but we were were very highly spiritual and trying to follow the Bible, you know, and trying to, to focus and, and keep our spirituality. So we, we considered, especially how we came up with that first song that first night until the morning, um, you know, we, 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 we thanked God for it. We consider it a blessing for God. We consider our town a blessing for God because nobody taught either of us anything. You know, we, we sat down and we, we learned this stuff. So we said, okay, but we're not going to just do music for no reason. You know, our music is either going, is either going to be praise to God or, or about spirituality, about positive things, you know, or, or, or talk about the conditions of the world, teaching, you know, teaching and, and, and pointing things out. You know, we were going to do stuff with a meaning, you know, all God-based. So I wanted to do the name Messenger. That was the name I wanted to do for the group. And he asked me why. He said, because I, I, I wanted it to be something positive. He said, well, why don't we just call ourselves positive? So I said, okay, how about positive messaging? And that's how we became. So that was our mission that we were on from, from, from 1980, the end of 1980 on, we were positive messenger. And that was what we were doing. And, you know, and it was me, Chili B. And at this point, at this point, because um, he moved in, at, at, at Monique, Nikki D, 
moved into my mother's house in Park Slope because she got pregnant. So she moved in at my mother's house. Chili B eventually moved in there too. In 1981, April 1981, Yvette and I got married. So the four of us lived in the same house on the same floor. Neek and, and, and Chili B lived in the back of the house. And Yvette and I lived in the front of the house. And we set up our studio in the middle room between us. And we said a little, it wasn't much of a studio, but that's where we kept our equipment. We made our music and um, we became positive messenger and we were doing stuff together. But also I'm still back and forth in that reggae band um, that, that I've been in that I kept getting fired from because I couldn't play guitar. Now I'm trying to play keyboards in the reggae band. And I bought Chili Bean to the, in the reggae band. You know, because he, he remember he was in Bed Stuy, he wasn't in Park Slope. So now he joined the reggae band, and um, eventually I got fired from the reggae band, and Chili B stayed in the reggae band. So a lot of the positive messenger stuff then became me doing the music, and Chili B coming in when I would pull him in, saying, "Yo, I left you something to do on this," because he was busy with the band. But um, all of that's all, 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 almost all of the first album of the Jam or Revenge album is all positive messenger songs. And you can, if you listen, they took the words out of Destination Earth, but if you listen to the lyrics of everything else, they're all saying something. Even Auto Man, you know, basically it, it, it is, is about something. Did, did you get a chance to see or meet any of the, you know, early hip hop, uh, New York based stars at that point, like any of the sugar, uh, sugar Hill people or, or Curtis blow or any of those people, did you cross paths or see them perform? Oh, Houdini, the Brooklyn cats. Yeah. Um, Houdini before they were Houdini, um, they were from it, it, it where we lived in park slope. Um, they were from the neighborhood right next to us, right, um, right west of us. So um, um, Jalil was from um, Gowanus Projects and um, Ecstasy. What was the name of those? Was it Wyckoff? No, it's not Wyckoff. Anyway, he, he was in a closer project. And I think it is Wyckoff. And we battled them one night. Um, they they were, well, Jalil was emceeing for a DJ named Michael Brown. And and um, we battled Michael Brown in, in, in the Project Center, the only battle we ever lost. We had many a battle, but I learned a lot that night. That was when we first started. So that had to be 1977. And, and yeah, it's Wyckoff, it's Wyckoff Projects. And um, I didn't understand acoustics yet. So all I thought was you just take speakers and aim them, aim, aim them at people, you know, and not understanding rooms or anything like that. So it was in a big center, a recreation center. And I put our speakers in the center of the room 
and pointed it towards where I thought the people were going to be. He set up in the corner. And we had we had more speakers. He only had two columns. We had more speakers, but it was it was a hedgepodge of all kinds of speakers, you know, house speakers, um, a, 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 a base rig speakers, all all kinds of stuff. It was really probably sounded like shit, but I didn't know better yet. I, I started with my home stereo, so yeah. <laughs> there, there you go. And um but we, we were at first we were taking turns, but there was a misunderstanding, and then we were blasting at each other, and we were a little bit louder than him. And then he taught me a lesson. He took his bass bottoms, put them in the corner of the room, and pointed them towards the corner, and that was the end of that. <laughs> and I said, "Oh shit!" And then I said, "Wait a minute! I have to start thinking about this shit mathematically." <laughs> And, and from that point on, I've learned to, 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 to understand because acoustics are not really that hard once you consider them, you know, but I hadn't considered them up to that point, but mm -hmm. um, it was an essential thing. Yeah. But um, yeah. Um, one night, one day we did a block party and, and, and I never met him afterwards, but we were at a block party and we had a, we had a, 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 a an MC in our crew named Daryl, uh, who used to call himself Kumo D. So that was fine. That's your name you want to go by. Fine. We were doing a block party and this guy came up and he said, yo, yo, give me the mic, man. Give me the mic. He's not Kumo D. I'm Kumo D. Now, I ain't never heard of neither one of them. <laughs> so I said, you know, because this is Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, you got to keep the people happy and hear these motherfuckers arguing. So I said, I'll tell you what. I turned the mic over and said, ain't neither y'all getting on. I want to meet Kumo D and see if that was him. Because that, that was um, got to be 78 or 79 that that happened. Oh wow, he's been on the he's been on the show. I wish I would have known. I I I, I want to ask him if that was him. Wow. I'm sure he would remember that. I bet he would. Mm -hmm. How much of an influence, and can you give viewers and listeners an idea of sort of the timing in terms of influenced uh, you? Are you influencing them? You know, people like Africa Bambada, Johnson Crew, Malcolm McLaren, Kraftwerk. Um, Hashim, Egyptian lover, you know, these electro funk, you know, sort of uh, leaders. Well, I, I don't, speaking for myself, I, 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 later on, I was influenced a little, you know, like, like, like Johnson Crew definitely influenced me a little, you know, but, uh, you know, because they were earlier. Um, but I think more, more than more likely, we were all influenced by the same people, and we were making versions, our own versions of the stuff that influenced us. Um, Johnson Crew, because I, I definitely was influenced by Pac Jam to a, to an extent, but I wasn't trying to sound like Pac Jam. Um, I. 
I was heavily influenced by Jean-Michel Jarre, um, Giorgio Moroder, and the the Computer World album, Craft for a Computer World World album, you know, and um, stuff like Don Ray, you know, and and Gary Newman. This 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 stuff shaped me as far as electronic music is concerned, you know, as far as making the, the rhythm sections electronic. Since I was into synths even before that. Um, so I, 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 I was on that edge before I heard any of them. I actually was already working on Computer Age the first time I heard Planet Rock. And that was the whole reason that I went back out and shopped the the what became nucleus because I'm I'm sitting there and I'm hearing Planet Rock on the radio. I said, oh shit, that's a hit. Well, I know this is a hit then, you know, because that that there was nothing else happening like that. You know, so but um it didn't influence me because I was already on that. I was already on that tip. I can play you stuff that I did tape, tape, tape to tape um, before I had to pour the studio in early 1980 is all electronic rhythmic stuff. I, I would take the drum machine and, and feed it through the vocoder and, and, and play it with the synthesizer just to get that electronic feel. So um, I think more, more, like, more than likely we were all influenced by the same people. I didn't hear Egypt until, and this is funny, because uh, Egypt, Egypt hit at the same time Jam On It did. So every city we would go, go and Jam On It was up there. Egypt, Egypt was up there too. It, it bugged me out. It's, it's, it, and, and yet Egypt, Egypt never played in New York. Yeah, when well, LA, where I'm from, it was yeah, you know, it, it was everywhere, all over the country. It was everywhere. We were we were on the Fresh Fest when that sucker hit. It was everywhere, but New York never played it. New York is good for hating on shit, man. Like Computer Age never played in New York, and, and I remember talking to the the label. And I said, y'all going to send that to the pools, to the record pools? And no, no, we're not sending this one to the pools. Yeah, well, they paid for that. <clears throat> yeah, that's how I got all the cool stuff through the record pool. Uh, yeah. resource, resource record pool, Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I was in it, um, IDRC. Okay. Resource <laughs> then became impact. It was impact or then resource or resource. And then I forgot the, the order, but yeah, <clears throat> same, same thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.